0: again with a a title change but um, just a slight adoption which is really about the saliency of uh, self-related information and I have to say it is rather scary standing up here immediately following such a beautiful lecture by Patrick but one of the things that Patrick said (coughs) and I wrote it down was that um, you fundamentally change what you perceive when you when that thing is linked to your own action Or when the event is linked to your own action. And what I'm going to be uh, talking about today is that we fundamentally change what we perceive when a stimulus or an event is linked not only to our own action, but to ourselves in general. And the talk I'm going to give is uh, rather more data heavy than that of Patrick, but I hope it will be of interest to get a flavour of some of the factors that control our attention and how salient that is to ourselves. And this is very much uh, joint work conducted uh, in Oxford and also Tsinghua in uh, China with Jay Sui. So, I'm a perceptual psychologist um, who's uh, spent all of my career really working on visual perception and attention. And for uh, many theorists, and for theorists at the time when I was uh, starting out, for instance work from Foda, David Marr and so forth, argued that vision operates in a very modular, bottom-up way, which is informationally encapsulated <coughs> from the ongoing social context in which we find ourselves. And so perceptual processes would be outside of effects of uh, intention, motivation and so forth. But those kind of views contrast with at least some more recent uh, emergent arguments that, for instance, the brain is operating in a predictive coding manner. So we are constantly setting up expectations which are based on the social context, uh, the association of stimuli to ongoing uh, direct interest, and therefore um, perception may change in relation to those high-level driving factors. And so what I'm going to do is to examine these particular kinds of claims about the way our perceptual systems work but in relation to a particular phenomenon which is how perception changes as a function of the personal social significance of a stimulus. For better or worse, um, human beings seem very self-biased in the way that we often think about the world. And there's a considerable amount of work in psychology showing this. when you get people to memorise events, events that are relevant to them are recalled much better than events that are labelled as being associated with somebody else. When we evaluate traits, we are biased to evaluate traits, uh, positive traits in relation to ourselves, for instance. And even in aspects of slightly more perceptually oriented tasks, we also show self-biases. And I don't have nice pictures of Robert Peel, but if you imagine yourself as Wayne Rooney and you're asked to carry out a task in which you have to judge whether this face is uh, oriented to the side or facing straight forward, then Wayne would be particularly fast at making a judgment to his own face shown here compared with a face of <coughs> somebody else who he also knows pretty well, Stephen Gerrard in this case. So there is a lot of phenomena in which people making judgments to information related to themselves seems to be uh, beneficial. What exactly drives these factors, though I think has been less clear, for instance we may be more familiar with information related to ourselves and so forth. It's also been unclear how pervasive that effect is, does it really permeate the way our perceptual systems operate, are these high level judgments that were really looking at and it's also been unclear to what extent these kinds of social factors may relate to other underlying drivers of performance for instance reward values emotional values and so forth maybe we um, are very biased towards ourselves because actually that's a very reinforcing stimulus very uh, also with positive valence in emotion so um, the empirical work we've been carrying out here has been to use really, really simple experiments, embarrassingly simple paradigms really, to look at associative learning to ourselves and then how that changes perceptual operations. And the idea has been really to control out some of these factors that are often going on in experiments and to look at fundamentally whether perceptual changes are produced. So what I'm going to talk about is um, some of these very, very simple experiments. Um, And I'm first of all going to try and show you the effects, um, the stability, um, the robustness of the effects, and things like how they change as we age. I'm going to look at whether we can easily control these effects um, by doing simple things like varying how probable stimuli are (coughs) and so forth. I'm going to look a little bit at the neural basis because my contention is that a simple association of something to yourself actually uh, changes the connectivity within the brain in a relatively fast way. And I'm going to say that actually having these associations is a bit like turning up um, the lamp or blurring the stimulus when it's not related to yourself. And that these social factors actually impact on the way perceptual processes are operating. So I, I hope that's all clear. That, and the argument is going to be that these kinds of associations that we can all form change and produce a kind of social saliency for stimuli that is actually very akin to many of the manipulations of perceptual saliency that cognitive psychologists have been running over the last 20 years. So, the self-association effect. Um, How does one go about trying to show that self-association is important? These are the embarrassingly simple paradigm that we've been using. We want you to associate that stimulus, the circle, with you. So that's you. This is your best friend. And this is a stranger. And what I'm going to do is show you stimuli... Pairings of these labels and shapes, and you have to respond if it's that pairing. So circle, you square, friend, triangle, stranger, and you say yes. If it's a repairing, a label with a different shape, you say no. Okay. And so, having had an hour of Patrick talking, I think it's always good to audience participation. You're going to be the subjects here, and I want you just to say yes, nice and loud as quickly as you can, or no, if it's a repair. Ready? Okay, Okay. so I don't know if you felt it, but um, I think this was the one that people were kind of stronger in their response to. Hmm. If you look at this in um, experiments. Um, This is a graph just showing distributions of responses here. This is the reaction time. This is the accuracy. So if you're up here you're slower and you're less accurate. And if you're down here you're fast and very accurate. This is the responses to the self-associated item compared with other ones. And for a psychology experiment this is an amazing result. um, Because you can see there's hardly any overlap in the distributions of the responses and this is gained just when you tell people to make these associations and immediately you get these kinds of results Um, you can play around with the familiarity um, for instance making an association to your mother as opposed to a friend and so forth but essentially you get the separation of the data Interestingly, um, if you turn down the contrast of the shape, so you make the shape a little harder to see, which means that you can measure how sensitive your perception is, you can see that turning down the contrast, which is these two conditions here for the self, doesn't make very much difference. Whereas turning down the contrast or an association to another person, even your best friend, disrupts how well they see the stimulus so that your perceptual sensitivity can change very quickly with an association like this. It's also the case if you test people on numerous occasions you get very stable results. So um, These are data showing the size of the advantage to the self-association compared with a stranger. When people have come back a week later in the lab you get them to carry out the task again. And essentially, the people who show very large effects on time one show very large effects on time <coughs> two. The people who are not so biased are not so biased on time two. So the stability in these results, although um, perhaps um, depressingly as, as I age, um, as you look at older people responding here, the magnitude of this difference between their self-responses to other people's uh, increases and gets exaggerated as we get older. So, very simple tasks lead to biases in uh, our association. They seem to actually even pervade the way that our perceptual systems work so that we leave less information to make a judgement about something that's relevant to ourselves, it seems to be a stable trait across time when you test individuals, and as we get older, this effect becomes even more pervasive in the way our systems operate. And so, um, we in the lab, anyway, have been interested in taking this kind of tagging of a social of a social association. To um, enable one to then start putting stimuli into a variety of perceptual paradigms where we know how the brain is operating, just to see how far down the system such biases uh, can permeate. We've looked at um, how easy it is to control this effect, too. <clears throat> and um, I'm just going to talk very briefly about some experiments that look at this ability to control your self bias at least in very simple paradigms like this. And here I'm going to work, what we do is vary the probability with which these stimuli appear in an experiment. And I'm going to show um, some data where we've varied the probability relative to a baseline that has equal probable stimuli. And so just to uh, illustrate that, These are data showing the um, magnitude of the self-bias, the change, so if you're coming up this axis here, you're showing a bigger self-bias effect than when all of these stimuli occur equally often. And This is a case where the self occurs relatively rarely and these mother and stranger stimuli occur more often. Is that clear? Sorry, it's a bit empirically generated. So, a bit loaded here. So, relative to when they're all occurring equally often, when the mother's occurring with higher probability and the stranger with higher probability, then you increase the efficiency of responding. But the self, you don't change very much. So, even though it's a low probable event and all of the things happening, you're still fast to it. You don't change. That's the take-home point. But the high probability events, you improve to. So your efficiency increases. And you can contrast this to cases where you make the self a high probability event, so three times as probable as the mother. And now, relative to this baseline, the mother decreases in efficiency. The self increases in efficiency, and the stranger stays about the same. Similarly here, you make the stranger low probable event, that decreases in efficiency, the self increases, and the mother stays about the same. So, a low probability event generally suffers. The second interesting thing here is that these are high probability events but when you're expecting yourself, the other high probability events don't gain. So there are costs for low frequency events which may f- reflect general effects of our expectancies. So if something's not what we expect, we're slow to respond to it, apart from the case of the self when we remain fast on the other and there's a minimal benefit for high frequency other things when we have an expectancy for things related to ourselves so I think there's two conclusions that we would like to make from that, first of all is that this self bias once something's associated to you is very hard to overrule So even if it's low probability, it still occurs. And secondly, when you set expectancies and your expectancy is to yourself, that fills your mind. So that even if there's a second high probable thing, it doesn't get the benefit. So there's both an automatic effect and there's a sort of dominance effect in expectancies. So, that's um, two behavioural sets of results. Thirdly, do these simple things change the brain? Well, it's very easy to, um, relatively easy anyway, to run brain uh, imaging studies where you get people to make these very simple matches. And when you do that, you find that um, areas of the brain become particularly active In response to seeing self related stimuli. And so here are are some imaging data which are looking at the contrast between brain areas that get more activity for self related stimuli compared with these other associations. And there are two areas here that I've highlighted. One is um, in the medial part of the frontal cortex, relatively low down, in fact, not. so different from uh, some of the regions Patrick was talking about which is an area that responds to the self in many circumstances and a second region that is typically involved in responding in an attentional related way to stimuli that are salient and so one thought here is that that you have this ventromedial prefrontal area that's uh, responding to self-related stimuli self associations you have this region here which is in the uh, posterior part of the superior temporal sulcus which is responding um, to salient stimuli and that forming this association produces um, connectivity between these regions that gears up your brain to responding to self-related information So the self-related information has become salient to your attentional (coughs) system responding here. And indeed, it is the case that if you um, carry out various forms of modelling of such data, then the modelled strength of connectivity between these regions predicts how efficient people are in responding to the self. So um, as you increase that connection, then you get increasingly fast at responding to self-related stimuli. So in conclusion, from this uh, little part, there's neural evidence suggesting that the brain can very quickly wire itself up for responding to information that's relative to ourselves. And we think that that's done by connecting regions that are perhaps holding forms of self-information to our attentional systems. And that the strength of connections within this circuit determines um, the efficiency of of the response to these stimuli. Part four, the final part of this empirical um, diatribe has been to look at the relations between these social changes in attention and perceptual changes that people have typically manipulated. And we've asked whether the social association to uh, the self produces change that are akin to manipulations of perceptual saliency. So is it that things that have become related to ourselves... We've upped the game for them in our perceptual systems in some sense. Um, I'm going to (coughs) take some cases here in which we're going to look at people responding to hierarchical stimuli, which are stimuli that have been previously used in looking at how easy it is to select a target and ignore distractors. And these stimuli um, are very traditional uh, stimuli in uh, visual experiments in psychology. There are these hierarchical items. And you can get people to respond to either the global form or the local form. And you can vary the saliency, perceptually, of the information they're responding to. So here, for instance, if you use very high contrast letters differently in colour it's very easy to respond to these local letters and to ignore the global shape that this is an H rather than an S. In contrast if you have stimuli that are all the same color and you blur them then it's easy to see the global shape here but more difficult to respond to the local items. So this is a a perceptual manipulation that changes the perceptual saliency of these local and global dimensions of the stimuli. And when you do that, you can just change around people's behaviour so that um, when you respond to a global stimulus, um, shown here in the white, then if you have a blurred letter, that's fast, and if you have the high contrast letters, that's slow. If you respond to the local stimuli, these ones here, then if you have a blurred letter, that's hard, and a high contrast letter it's easy. So perceptual changes change around how easy or hard it is for people to respond to stimuli like this. And so we were interested in what happens if you don't change the perceptual salience but you make these stimuli associated to you or to other people. And do you produce effects that change around how people respond to them that mimic this kind of result one other um, little point to note is that in imaging studies <clears throat> when people have manipulated perceptual saliency there are particular areas of the brain and this here um, is on the left side of the brain and this is in the uh, parietal cortex a region called the uh, intraparietal sulcus that is particularly active when you have to respond to a low salient stimulus so this um, part of the brain shows increased response when you have to go to a low saliency thing and ignore high saliency distraction And it's been argued in this perceptual work that this left IPS is involved in suppressing unwanted distraction. So if you go for um, a local letter and it's very blurred stimulus, this region increases its activity. So our question was, for instance, if we make a social rather than a perceptual change to the stimulus, both behaviourally, but also in the brain, do you see equivalent changes taking place? So are there similar behavioural and neural effects, not when you increase the contrast or blur stimuli, but when you just associate them with social factors? Um, and I, this is uh, too heavy, really, in terms of experiments. But I'm going to first of all move to a, an experiment <coughs> which is uh, showing what happens when you change the perceptual salience of the stimuli. So, for instance, taking this kind of manipulation, where you have high contrast stimuli that differ in colour that are locally salient or blurred stimuli like this that are globally salient. And this is the crossover pattern of results that you get, similar to the one I showed you just before, in which on trials where the letters differ, for instance, if you're responding to a local letter and the global um, stimulus is salient here, then you're slowed. And here, when you're responding um, to um, a global letter and the global letter is salient, then you're fast. So you produce um, greater interference when the distraction (coughs) is very salient. And that crossover pattern of result is the one to notice when you carry out these experiments but use stimuli associated with social factors. So for instance if you take these simple shapes you get some to be associated with the self some with a friend, some with other people and then you run experiments with neutral stimuli that don't have high contrast or that are not blurred and that generally produce about equal responses to local and global elements. When you um, run them But the stimuli associated with the self or with another person, then if the distractor is associated with the self, which is this condition here, then you get interference compared with when the distractor is not associated with the self. And similarly here, if the distractor is associated with the um, self, which is this condition here, you get interference. So behaviorally, just as when you Ramp up contrast or you blur with it, you produce a crossover pattern of interaction with neutral items that are simply associated with oneself compared with other people. And at a, a neural level, if you run these experiments, you get um, patterns of brain activity that are in very similar areas and mimic the same patterns that you get with perceptual salience. So here we're looking at the um, regions that are activated by salience perceptually, uh, which is shown in the blue. In red are regions activated by salience socially and yellow we have an overlapping area here. And essentially the bits of the brain that are involved in suppressing high perceptually salient stimuli also get recruited when you're suppressing uh, high socially relevant stimuli. For instance, stimuli relevant to you compared with other people. So, in these experiments, um, with very simple stimuli, one can show that the social significance of a stimulus operates very similarly to effects of changing the physical state of the stimulus in the, our behaviour and in the way the brain's operating. So it's like having a self associated shape at a global level is something like blurring the stimulus so you see the global level more clearly. Or having a self-associated item at the local level in one of these stimuli is a bit like turning up the contrast so you see the local item more clearly. So these empirical points that um, I've run over just using this self-association task indicate, first of all, that very rapidly we can show behavioural and also brain-level changes that reflect a substantial advantage to things that are related to us these advantages are stable across individuals over time and also across different ages of subjects This, this kind of effect is actually quite difficult for people to overrule so even if it's a low probability event we still respond to it but it's also very dominant when we set expectancies so it's actually quite hard for people to think of a second high probable event if they're thinking about something relevant to themselves these biases are associated with uh, wiring on the fly if you like within the brain which tune social areas to attention areas that respond to stimuli And the self-association produces changes that are equivalent, behaviourally and in the brain, to changing the perceptual salience of a stimulus. So those are the um, sort of empirical points about very simple manipulations that very quickly change our behaviour. What Does this mean? What are the implications of these kinds of results? Well, um, for an empirical psychologist, I think such results are interesting because it's such a simple technique that you can um, apply it to lots of kinds of driving factors that may underlie some of these uh, self-biases. For instance, you can link it to different reward values or different valence values for stimuli, do they change uh, behaviour in the same way and so they provided a means of exploring in very simple paradigms but in paradigms where perceptually we understand what's going on to some degree how social factors may provide um, mediating effects secondly on a sort of more philosophical level I think the evidence points towards perceptual processes not being informationally encapsulated and not being modular and highly modular in the way that Fodor talked about and Ma talked about and that even making a very quick association with a stimulus means that you change the perception to it, you need less contrast, you see the stimulus in some sense better. What are the factors that drive these self-biases? Um, I can't say that we um, know, although we have uh, various pieces of information that they are not tied to basic things like reward values, probably within the brain, and so forth. And that self-biases here may reflect a very basic aspect of human cognition and perception, which is, that at maybe some survival level, it's um, been useful to produce enhanced attention to self-relevant stimuli um, for our uh, reactions. And that's why perhaps at a trait level, for instance, we see these effects coming through. The effects also occur across different cultures and unlike some higher level mediation effects in relation to um, self-representation are not changed so easily. So um, my conclusions really coming away from this are that Aspects of um, self-moderation are actually very um, influential on the way that perceptual systems work and that we need to think of perceptual systems operating in a social context and not simply being something driven by aspects of the data, contrast and low-level factors alone. So um, thank you and thanks to the various people who have funded this.